Hey. Evening, Michael. Yeah, it's all bad as well. We said he won't turn up again. <laughs> well, only turning up because United won at the weekend. Yeah. Oh, no, makes, nice. Makes a change. Are you in the yeah. shed? I, yeah, I am, mate. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the garden shed, mate. Yeah, I was just said we're uh, we're interviewing someone else on Wednesday, and uh, I said I, I might have to. I don't know whether it's time to update now. And you know, are you in there? You in the downstairs toilet, mate? Are, are you? I'm not sure. <laughs> where, where have you got your Man United shirt? <laughs> you in the doghouse, isn't you? <laughs> <laughs> For more than one reason. <laughs> Michael, yeah. we've made it this time on time, haven't we? We are actually, yeah. I'm just thinking my battery might go in my laptop. Better go and get my charger, I don't know. Right. Are you ready to go then, lads? Yeah. 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 I think we might be doing Dan's questions as well, the way it's going. Oh, we've well, at least at least I don't know about everyone else, but on my screen he's just he's frozen with a nice smile. I mean, at yeah. least it's nice to see, isn't it? Well it is. Does Dan need well, to reset reset or not? Dan, you need to reset oh. your the zoom. Well, I don't know. Can't even oh. hear him. Really? Oh, He's just <laughs> it is quite a, quite an unfortunate cheesy smile he's got on there as well, actually. Let me message him. He says we're all loud and clear at his end. He's not loud and clear for us, is he? Has he has he been silenced at last? That's the question. It would be a first <laughs> though. We've silenced Dan Bull. I'm not sure. No, he, says, he, does, he doesn't know whether he believes us. It's like we've set this up, Michael, with you beforehand. Some <laughs> kind of prank on it. Right, you ready to go, Dan? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Season three, episode two of More Than A Job podcast. My name's Mike Bradford. Hi, it's Jay Woolerton. And my name is Daniel Bull. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like... And tonight, it's our absolute pleasure to welcome back a man who needs no introduction, and he's as he's one of the leading voices in education and a sought-after speaker, but most importantly, a good friend of More Than A Job podcast. Welcome to Michael Childs. Hello. Welcome. Good to be back. It's good to be back indeed. Welcome back to our podcast. Michael, you said you've got to cook a steak, actually, so you're trying to give us a hurry-up already on our, on our podcast, but it is great to have you back. So before you go off and cook your steak, can you tell us about life growing up for you and your own education? I was a good student, of course. I um, never did anything wrong. And uh, yeah, I worked really hard, to be fair. I, uh, I remember I used to, it's quite, well, it's quite sad, really, in a way, but um, I thought it was good at the time. So I used to, I used to be the register monitor for um, the year group. So I used to take, I kid you not, I used to go around for my head a year and used to take the registers round to each of the, the tutors and uh, give them the registers. And then I used to collect them back in and then used to do all the notices. And all. I tell you, I, when I reflect on it, actually, my head a year was Mr. Burnley. He won't, he won't be listening to this, don't think, anyway. But, but uh, I think I did all his job for him, to be fair. So, I mean, as a head of year, he, he had an easy life because he had me, just, missed, um, just Mike Charles running around doing his job for him. I used to send notices and all that lot. Um, Luckily, I mean, nowadays, I reflect and I think I could have probably just been completely taken apart by my peers. But actually, surprisingly, I don't know, I was quite popular at school and I don't know what, I don't know what it was. But um, but yeah, so it must have been my, my charismatic character. But but yeah, I was a um, good student, 
clean record. That's that's my my school life. Left what? with a good set of GCSEs, did A levels. What school was it, Mike? It's in Tamworth, you want to give it a shout out? Well, it was at the time Balgrave High School. It's now Tamworth Enterprise College. It's been taken over by Academy many years later, but um, it was uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. I got a few awards as well. I had some little shields that I, I collected for uh, different um, achievements. So I got an award for geography, of course. Um, no surprise there. I got an award for a few other things. Um, I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it. So, top man. What what going to Belgrave made you want to come into teaching after all that then? To be fair, when I first grew up, I wanted to be a carpenter. So all through my life, I wanted to be a carpenter. And I, um, I even, for my A-level project, I even designed this little car that was for my nephew, Connor, and he's got his own child now, he's grown up. I actually designed it with my with my granddad. We designed it in the back of the garden. I, I want to tell my design teacher this because technically shouldn't have designed it in the back of the garden with my granddad because it's meant to be my project. But hey, don't worry about that. But designed it in the back of the garden with my granddad, and it was like a, a big car. It was almost like a postman pat red van. And uh, we had I designed a little abacus inside the back of it. Um, and levered the seat on the front and a steering wheel so the nephew could sit in the front of it. And then when he'd finished going around the garden, he could get out, he'd go into the back of it, open the back door, he's got an abacus in it. And so, yeah, and then I designed um, like a writing sort of like tool for children who had um, a disability, who struggled with writing, and it had like um, rests for their arms on it. And then they could draw on it. So anyone, any child that had like difficulty with drawing and fine motor skills, I designed like a, a, a almost like a, a board that would sit on the desk when they were learning, rest their arms on it, and then they could write and draw. So yeah, carpenter originally. And then I just decided that quite like geography and uh, just thought, yeah, I wanted to do something that would be just involve helping others really so I thought teaching originally a primary school teacher actually so I did my work experience as a primary school teacher in year 10 did two two I did two weeks normal two weeks as it was then in local primary school the primary school that I went to actually Lakeside Primary School tell me shout out to them and um, I did my uh, work experience there and then loved it that much so I actually kept going back so even when I finished for GCSEs, like at the extended period in summer in July, I actually went there and just volunteered and just helped out and uh, did it in my A-levels as well. When I had some free time, I went to the school and just helped them out. And um, Have you never thought about taking any of those clever little gadgets you were designing into the classroom then? Obviously, you had a passion for helping kids with learning needs. Yeah, I, d- I didn't, to be fair. And... and uh, it just transpires that I don't even know where those two items have gone now, which is a real shame, actually. I can't remember what happened to them, but not really thought about it any further, to be fair. But like, I suppose in terms of like working and ward and stuff like that, the fact that I've built my own kitchen and done all the, all the house stuff, just it shows that I quite enjoy doing that. Obviously, you just, uh, you just finished it. When we spoke to you the first time, you just finished decorating your, your, your bathroom. I'm sure you had. Michael, as an EdTech demo school, how do you use technology in the classroom? In subjects, certainly, like having, they can have a map 
on their devices in front of them on their desk rather than printing, save the environment, don't have to print lots off and put down the trees. We have utilised technology quite a bit in terms of um, smart boards that we have. So we have clever, well, they're not, they're clever touch boards. So we use those, obviously, from the perspective of remote education, we've done quite a lot of work around the use of um, hybrid teaching and uh, we've delivered live lessons all throughout the first lockdown really so we never no child has missed any sort of like lesson and uh, no child has missed um, the sort of expertise from the teacher that they would usually have really as best you can so um, quite lucky really and obviously we've worked to support other schools on on how they can do that along with how we've shifted to digital assessments so shifting workload from that and uh, digital knowledge organizers and uh, even though I think Google Classroom has been something that's been utilized more so since lockdown the first lockdown we've used it all the time so it's honing in on how we've set up systems that make that effective teaching tool really. And Michael if other practitioners across the country want to come to your school and see how you guys view it as an, as an ed tech demo school. How, how do they do it? Do they just, just phone up the main school, do they? Yeah, so they can sign up uh, with on the ed tech website and they can join from there, really. So it's all free support. We're funded through the DfE to provide the support and then schools can sign up and join. Okay. And talking of your school, it is going to be the host of Research Ed Warrington. It's happening... 23rd of April it's sold out but what can we expect from your first ever research and event as a host yeah well I, it's I'm looking forward to it and I think it's well we're now about coming up to 12 weeks away aren't we I think that from the perspective of it there's not been many in the northwest recently so Blackpool was the last one I think that was 2018 I think 2019 so first one in the northwest for a while it's going to be a big event and uh, lots to look forward to, lots of um, support from our sponsors like John Cat, like um, like yourselves, of course, and Crown House and Evans Space Education. We've got some big, big names there as well. Supporting it. Company. Got a whole diverse range of, of speakers as well, really. Yeah, it's going to be a good event, I think. It's going to be a really good event. It's going to be an opportunity for those in the Northwest to get a chance to immerse themselves in one of those days which they haven't had the opportunity and I think that's that's really important so more tickets this is exclusive actually more tickets are on the way being released this week and uh, next week we've got an even more exclusive announcement so a first for research ed and I'm sure as part of that there'll be a broad range of uh, literature that'll be on sale there and people can immerse themselves with and one of those, no doubt, will be your third book, The Sweet Spot, which uh, has been flying off the shelves. It was also illustrated by your good friend, Dave Goodwin. And for those who haven't yet bought or read the book, can you give us a bit of an overview and a summary about what this instalment of the Michael Charles saga is about, please? Yeah, so I think like when I did Craft, that was all about condense, reflect, assess, feed forward, target-driven improvement. And I knew that. As a general book, it was it was a good book for people who were a couple of years into their career, who wanted to reflect on the research, have something that they could 
sort of hone in on to in terms of assessment. And then I thought, well, there's feedback, that feed forward type during the group. There's something in there. I want to focus on that because that's not something that you can do justice in just that section. And I knew that I wanted to delve deeper into it because I knew that it was an important part. And then I thought, all that condense is all about essentially how do we as teachers explain a model to enable people to condense and create those notes that they use and I think I've noticed in the past and I said this a few weeks ago to some Bolton trainees that um, we get pupils to write in exercise books they'll look nice neat and pretty and uh, we, we give them some feedback and then at the end of the year comes around comes around the school Bob the caretaker with the big bin and he's like right end of year end of term clear out chuck all your books in here I'll get rid of them for you no props and then that's it. You just move on and start a new set of books. And I think um, it's a shame because actually, what are we doing? And why do we just dump those books every year? And do pupils take pride in them? But what do we do to create those books that enable them to have that pride? And so it all comes down to, well, how do we explain the models as teachers in the classroom? <laughs> Pepsi McRae writes about how you really dig into essential nuts and bolts, and the book is very practical for all classroom practitioners. You start by talking about classroom layout. Is there an optimal classroom layout, Michael, and how much consideration should we give to the classroom layout? I think initially I didn't give much consideration to it, but then I talk about reflections of my own teaching, and I think that's what I try and do in any, any of the books that I write, to share, well, this is what I've experienced as a teacher and as a teacher still. Um, doing it day in day I've taught four lessons today so I taught year, year nine year seven year 10 year 11 today I thought them, there is something in it sometimes because are all your pupils sat in a position where they feel comfortable and I don't mean comfortable as necessary as in comfortable being in the room because yes that's important but this perspective I'm talking about physically comfortable are they having to arch their neck? Are they having to sit awkwardly? Are, are they trying to sort of look across the room and they haven't, they're having to um, watch um, Johnny in front who's got big air and he's getting in the way or whatever else. But are they in a position where they feel like they, they've got access to, to you as the teacher and, and your, your knowledge? So... When I read the research, research suggests that there is an impact and that actually, on the whole, rows tend to see better outcomes, but the research is quite limited in, in a sense. However, there's lots of research that shows that actually when students sit at the back of the classroom, there's less interaction. So uh, those that sit in the back of the room want to interact with each other rather than in the classroom. And I suppose when I think in the early stage of my career, it would be the naughty children who want to get to the back of the room because they, they can hide away at the back. And the, the other part of the research talks about like T-zones and there is a T-zone in your classroom. That T-zone is almost like the premier seats at the Odeon. Like you'd pay extra for those. You pay a couple of extra quid, don't you, to sit in the premier seats. But supposedly there's some premier seats in your classroom and, and it's that T-zone. And I suppose... What, what I said in the book is, do you know what? Sometimes as teachers, we don't have a choice in our classroom layout because it might be that the actual 
brick walls of the classroom is just not, you can't change it. However, are we being proactive as teachers and how can we, how can we put in strategies to mitigate against those potential um, pockets and areas whereby they, they're not getting that premier seat uh, opportunity in your classroom? And I suppose it comes down to those basics, isn't it? Do you plan your seating plan? And what I mean by that is do you strategically sit people where you want to sit them? And that's all just part of taking control of the classroom as a teacher, isn't it? And do you, like for me, I realised even the other week, and I thought, like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I've written about it. Why, why am I doing it? So I, I, we've got lecterns in our classrooms. And the problem is that where I'm stood at the lectern, sometimes I naturally lean towards the my right to the classroom. And so those that sitting on the right almost get better attention from me than those on the left. So now I consciously have to make sure I ask as much questions to those on the left as I do on the right. And it's just all about if you've got that in your mind, you know that these pockets of research have identified this, how can you mitigate against it? And so is there one size fits all? Do I think that every single classroom should have rows? No, not at all. Does the research show that pupils perform better in rows? Yes, it does. But if you haven't got that option or you don't want to do that, how do you set it up for your seating plans and then for your strategic questioning so that everyone, because what you want in a classroom, don't you, ultimately, everyone sitting in an Odeon Premier seat for free. Michael, you talk about the research showing that rows is, is more optimum than not. Why? Does the research say why that's, that's more optimal? Because you've got every pupil sat almost facing the front and you've got easier access to them because they're not arched, they're not towards the side, they're not facing each other, which can prompt uh, off-task behaviour. Because, like, I mean, especially if, you, if they're sat in tables, no matter how hard you try, if you sat in a table of six, you've got four students that will be this way, and you're here at the front, two on the back end will be towards you, so it just taught, it, it outlines the fact that it promotes off-task behaviour because they're not, they haven't got the focus or attention on you as the teacher. It's the one thing that COVID did us a favour then. They got all the classrooms back in rows and sat facing the front. So according to the research, it's the one thing we can be thankful of COVID with education got kids facing front and facing the teacher. Yeah, and I, th I, th I suppose so. But I think that, like I say, uh, and I've been really conscious of this over the last six months, I don't want to say to anyone, you should do this or you should do that or this is, this is the best way. But mm. from the research, it, it would suggest that that is a more favourable sort of like layout to promote learning. I suppose one of the biggest challenges you have is when you don't have your own classroom. I assume you still have your own classroom, Michael. Yeah, I've got my own classroom, yeah. Yeah, so when you don't have your own classroom, you chop and change between them. I know myself and Michael do. So you have this optimum idea of how you want to teach. You walk in and the member of staff's changed the seating plan. <laughs> mm. And they've changed the table layout. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, hold on, what's going on with my seating plan? And what's going on with this great idea I've, I've had for my lesson? Just I suppose, then, like I said, that comes back to that idea that you want to you want to be strategic in your 
seating like planet south where you sit sit students and if you're aware of it and you know there's going to be seats there that may not be as prominent as what you'd want them to be you're a bit more proactive in, in your use of questioning and you're checking for understanding and you're circulating around the room so that you can try and mitigate where you can i mean the research from black in 2007 that i did in the book said like a poor seating arrangement can has the potential to negatively impact learning by up to 50 percent and that there was other research by fernandez um and renald though that said in 2011 like participation, sense of control, academic or not academic activity can be affected by classroom layout. So lots of research in there that I looked at did indicate an impact on learning, but it's just being aware of that, I think. And if you're aware of that and you know that, how can you mitigate against it by being strategic in the way you set your classroom up? And Michael, what are your views, feelings on pupil premium students, SEND students being placed in the classroom? Should they be on the front row? Should they be central to the room? Have you got any evidence or, or information on that that could help practitioners? Central in the way that they sit? Yeah, so as in they're, you know, they're sat in the very middle of the room, so they're in the teacher's eye line you know, for the majority of the time thinking about your arc spanning out. Yeah, so you, you want them to be sat so that that you they can align you can align their attention because like anything isn't it if they're sat facing a window and not facing you whatever's coming whatever's happening past that window is going to draw their attention when when you don't want it to so having them facing the front and it comes back to that idea of um, I talk about it when you when I when I mentioned about delivering your explanation that you want to make it you want to note notify them you want to say to them right this is an important part now I'm about to explain. I want you to track me and I want you to listen carefully because what we do next after this, you're going to, you need to use this information to support the next step. So I think, like I say, for me, the, the most important part is knowing your classroom layout, knowing areas of your classroom where it, you think that might not be so effective, that might be a poor seat, trying to strategically stop that from happening and this ties in quite nicely with the talk that jack tavasley marsh did at research ed surrey and we talked to him about this in season two when he came on and we're talking about avoiding distractions in the classroom how to maximize attention um, and he did this based upon the research of mike hobbs now you talk a lot about classroom aesthetics in the book what's best plain walls Colourful displays, keywords on the walls. What does the, the research show? Yeah, that whole idea of line and attention, I think I, again, I wouldn't advocate that your whole classroom has to be clinical, white and nothing in it. But the research does show that the more stimulating an environment the more it will affect attention. So if it's if it overly stimulates, it will affect attention. So I think that I, I, I would suggest or I would recommend that you have like your front facing wall clear. That's the wall that you you want them. To, if I don't know if you've got a if you've got a picture on the board that you your whiteboard or your smart board, you want them to focus on that, don't you? You don't want them to focus on something that's around it. 
that's going to distract them. Or if you're drawing something on a whiteboard to model or explain something, again, you just want them on looking at that, nothing else. And yeah, you might have some other displays at the back of the room that you might refer to, like in geography, we have a world map that we might want to use potentially to talk about. Um, but years, like I said, years ago, I used to spend hours creating displays and then those displays would be need updating and, and it, I just resent it. And so I just don't do that anymore. And I don't do it because I don't think it brings any value to the classroom. And I suppose it, it's tough, isn't it? Because I, I said this to trainees as well, Bolton trainees a few weeks ago. As a teacher, you want to you want to work in a nice environment. You want a nice room. It's your classroom. Why shouldn't I decorate it? Why shouldn't I put all those posters up? Why shouldn't I put my favourite football team player on the wall so the kids know who I support? But is it really beneficial to learn in it? It's not. And ultimately, as much as it's your classroom, it's, it, the pupils you teach, it's their classroom as well. And I suppose for me, it's been selfless in that approach, isn't it? Because what, what, what are we here for as teachers? We're here to help pupils succeed. And if the research, if this part of research that suggests that overstimulated environments don't necessarily help all pupils to succeed. And do you know what? Probably it won't matter for some pupils. And this is where it's a context of research, isn't it? But if there's two or three pupils in that room where it does matter, then I don't want to affect those pupils. And so I was guilty of creating overstimulated environments and I just don't do that anymore. And you know what? If it makes a, a little bit of an impact for those few pupils, great. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's those, it's just being mindful of that. Just on the question that James mentioned about me and him not having a classroom, just wanted to go back over classroom layout. How important is it for the teacher to be able to move around the classroom so they can look over each student's work? Is that something that is supported by research? I know in Teach Like a Champion, they talk about breaking the classroom up so you can move to the back of the room and easily. Yeah, definitely. I think, if, I think circulating is important, isn't it? Because give that in that I've talked about didn't I in the feedback pendulum you give that in the moment feedback and you can spot errors and you can spot misconceptions quite quickly and also I think that sometimes if you were just stand at the front would everything you you could even if you had the best culture in the room would every student would every student still do the best that they can and push themselves if they thought that you were never going to come and check any point in a lesson. And if we're honest with ourselves, if even adults do it, don't they? If you sit, you sit at a, I don't know, you sit at an inset and, and they say, right, everyone get their pens out. I want you to do this. You've got five minutes. And you try and get away with it and don't do it, don't you? But if there's someone, if you know someone's going to come around and check and ask you, you're like, oh, better do that because they're going to come and check on me. But it's the same with the teachers, isn't it? It's the same with your pupils in your room. If they know you're going to come and check in on them to make sure, not just that they're doing the work, but they're okay. And I think that's shifting my mindset with teaching as well. Like years ago, I'd be like, you haven't started, Tom. What, why haven't you started yet? Or I might say, like, that's not enough. You haven't written enough for that. Like, I was expecting X, Y, and Z. But now when I go around, I'm, I'm like, I just have a quick glance. And if I can see they're struggling, if, if I can see that they're being... Then that's not started. I might say, "Oh, is everything okay, Tom?" 
do you need help with that so it's not a, now about me it's just switching that language isn't it and, and changing that culture and i just think the idea of checking in regularly is important because also i suppose again context wise some some pupils go through a lot don't they at home and some pupils bring a lot into school and, and they're, they're struggling as, as young adults and i think they may just be distracted because they're struggling on that day and you're just that quick check-in, do you need a bit of help, do you need a bit of support? Um, it's important. So, yeah, I think circulating is probably one of those strategies that doesn't get spoken about enough. Pitching up our lessons all seems very sensible and simple, but it doesn't seem to happen still everywhere, does it? So how do we go about sorting out this out in schools where the pitch is still too low? I think it comes back to targets, doesn't it? I think that, and I, I, I did a spread on this, didn't I, the other day on Twitter, if you saw it, I did a little thread on it. I think we, we're still too focused on targets. Too, I said this idea creates too much noise in schools. Targets and grades is noisy. And it's almost like that piercing noise in your ear when something's not working right, when the, when the I don't know, when the smoke alarm goes off because... You're in the shower. I think the yeah targets are just noisy. So I think if we want to pitch up our explanations and we want to bring that rigor in the classroom and we we want to what Mary Myers says the phrase um, set it above their pay grade. Don't don't think about targets. Don't think about what the targets are. Just see them as pupils who need to master geography or need to master English or science or maths and then. Then, okay, once you've established that and your expectations are high for everyone, irrespective, and you don't, you don't know what the targets are because you just, you're just like, right, I've just got to help this pupil to be the best geographer they can be or scientist or writer. Then you can say, right, what does that look like at my school? What does that look like in my department as a team? How can we deliver that so that our curriculum does pitch it up? And then... And then it comes down to, right, okay, so let's be honest with ourselves. Where are our expertise in our department? Who's got the strength in, in this area of geography? Who's got the strength in, in this novel that we're teaching? Or who's really strong at this? Because that's part of their expertise and that's what they focus on at degree level. Okay, so how can we tap into your expertise? And then say, right, how are we going to present this to pupils? Practice our explanations? And then I, and I always, and I think this is more so in recent years, it's fine if you find something hard in your subject, if it's not something that you are stronger or if it's your Achilles heel, if you like. Okay, so just being aware of that and saying, right, what can I do? Seek support from colleagues. How can I explain this better? How can I go away and practice myself? And all of those strategies, I think, would help but i think we talk about a lot in our school it's accepting that that vulnerability as a teacher everyone has a vulnerability and creating that culture of safety not just for pupils but for teachers to to be able to express that amongst colleagues and say right how can we support each other so that when we do present our explanations and models we're as confident as we can be because I remember years ago 
when I was training the first couple of years of teaching. Right, okay, you've got, you've got this scheme of work to do for this term, here you go, off you go. Or here's this double page spread of a textbook, you've got to create a lesson for this, off you go. Didn't matter, like, if I didn't know it, I just had to do it. And did it mean my explanations and models were great? Probably not, I would say not. Did it make me an anxious teacher at times? Probably yes, on reflection. And was I vulnerable to not looking the expert in front of pupils? Absolutely. And did it help me? No, I don't think it did. And so I'm very mindful of that now. Are you saying you get rid of targets altogether or is it something maybe targets are useful for school leaders after the event to assess whether or not, you know, the teachers performed well enough or in relation to that group. Are you saying in terms of actually improving the performance in the classroom, targets are pretty useless? Yeah, 100%. I think they're useless. They, they, they don't mean anything. Like, you look at the, you look at the subject grade descriptors, meaningless. And is it helpful for pupils? No, I don't think it is. Not at all. I don't, don't see, I don't see the benefit yeah, towards like year 11 when they've got to start filling in college applications, yeah, you want to give them an indication of, of where they're at. But even then, it's it's tough, isn't it? Because I don't, unfortunately, in society, we've got it set up where grades almost become a necessity at some point. In, in the, but I'd love, to, I'd love to work. It'd be a great experiment, wouldn't it, in one school where no, I don't know, a whole year group started in year seven were never given target grades, never told where they were at in terms of a grade, but were just told this is this is your knowledge gap and this is what you need to do next to close that gap, just purely about the subject, right the way through to year 11 and then did the GCSEs. I'm pretty damn sure you'd probably see um, a positive correlation you can never be certain but I'm, I'm pretty sure you would because A you haven't got the anxiety B you haven't got this grade 9 girl who's had that grade 9 target since she started GCSEs and for whatever reason because the school say you can never give a child a grade 9 can't never ward that ever you can't ever say they're going to get a grade 9 but you can say they're going to get a grade 8, 7, 6 somehow I don't know anyway you can tell them they're going to get that so then this, this, this particular girl student never achieves a target through all the GCSEs, right the work before she sits official exams, all the reports say below target, below target. Below. Like her self-esteem must be absolutely shocked. You will never believe she's going to do it. So I think we set some students up for not achieving their potential because we do things like that. And I think... I'm quite passionate about it and I could talk all night just about it, but I think that we've got it wrong at the minute fundamentally and it's the system of our education system. And how many times though, this gets me back on actually, how many times though, actually, when you say like, you've got to fill a college application in and you say, right, you've got to get X, Y, and Z, but actually when they come to it, it didn't really make a difference because the college let them in anyway half the time so why bother why bother wanting to know it beforehand just get a feel of it like what do you want to do next this is the college i want to go to 
And then as a school, you literally report. So you could, as a school, report and say, yes, we feel that that child is on track to be to be ready to take that subject at your college. We're professionals, aren't we? So, yeah, we think they're ready, and that should be enough. Not... Okay, let me let me help you fill in your college application with your tutor. No, you're not on target at the minute. But then that opens up a whole new field. That opens up the schools saying, in year nine, cleverly, without telling the students their target, saying, we feel that actually this is the path that you need to be taking. We feel that this is the best subject for you. We feel that you're going to achieve better at this level because, you know, you don't want to set them up and they go, yeah, well, I'm going to be a dentist. But you actually know as a school you're not going to be quite there. So it's about having that, those meaningful conversations. And that's why the new bills come in, in terms of careers, starting down in year seven. So that these kids have got an idea right from the minute they get into school, actually what they're, what they want to do. They get a breadth of knowledge. So actually they can say, do you know what, the way that I learn in school, the way that I enjoy learning, actually, I think this is probably the field I'm going to go. This feels comfortable to me that I'm actually progressing in a way to get into this particular career. So that actually you never have the issue of the college application because they're going to go to the college and do the course that best suits them for them to be a success in their life. Yeah, definitely. And I think too many times, and I get why schools do it, don't get me wrong, but you, you, you shoehorn certain pupils into certain subjects because that you haven't got room in one subject, you haven't got room in another mm-hmm. subject. And sometimes you have pupils taking subjects that they never wanted to take, they resent it, and then they never achieve. And I'd love to see the correlation actually as well between pupils who are forced to do a subject to fit an option block and then the success rate. Because I'd probably put a bet on that actually those that are forced to do something don't succeed or don't achieve their potential because they just don't want to do it. Also, those kids who are forced to do the EBAT because the big computer in the sky tells them, well, you should be doing the EBAT, you should be doing a language, you should be doing all that, just because apparently their their ability level but they've actually got no interest in it at all you know children mm-hmm. can be children can be very bright and still look at you if you you know you're clearly you're clearly an academic you've clearly done well within your field of education but what was wrong with you just wanting to be a carpenter if that's yeah, what you've exactly. done and wanted to do yeah exactly and that's and a, why and a, last couple of years and a twitter and a twitter celebrity james oh sorry and a twitter celebrity yeah i forgot that one Yes, yeah, it's, it's why the last couple of years I just I don't talk about grades, don't talk about them. Not they talk about when I need to talk about them because obviously sometimes it's needed. But most of the year I just say, look, we were aspiring to be geographers. This is this is how you do it. And I always say, a grade is accumulation of marks. So that the more you know the more the likelihood you are to get more marks, the more the likelihood you are of achieving what you want to achieve. There's no glass ceiling. Just on that note, Michael, would, would you rather see students doing nine GCSEs and attaining lower grades or being removed from elements of some subjects and then just getting five GCSEs at, at higher grades? What, what, what do you think would be in a, you know, a student's best interest? Is it, is it the breadth or is it the depth, in your opinion? I, I think the problem is that I get why you want to do a broad range of skills, but I also wonder, language-wise, languages is really important, don't get me wrong, I understand it, but how many thousands of pupils are put through languages every year but actively choose not to focus on it because it's not 
It's not the path that they need to take. It's not part of their flight path in terms of career profile. So by the time they get to this, this, this time in the year, it's not their focus anymore. And so they're like, right, I need to focus on X, Y, and Z. So actually it always becomes low grade. I'll be honest. I did German. I got A stars, A's, B's. What was my lowest grade in my suite of exams? It was a C and it was my German because I didn't focus as much on it. Yeah, I tried. That was just me. But did I actively revise more for that? No, I didn't because it wasn't a priority in my eyes for the next step. And so I suppose in answer to your question, less is more sometimes, isn't it? And what's the agenda for a language? Is the agenda for the language because that's what the government believe everyone should do? Or is the agenda for the language the benefit of the pupils? And if if the pupil, you've got, I think for languages, you've got to have a real passion to want to do it, haven't you? Personally, I think when you force students to do it, even, even the brightest of students don't always perform. We're not, we're not talking about French, Spanish, German, whatever language it is, not being a useful subject. Like you said, they're really useful, you know, and, and I would say to students, probably try and learn a language. But we're talking more about students being forced to do the languages, aren't we? You know, as opposed to yeah. how valuable, you know, we, we, every subject can argue, you know, its own case as to why it's valuable. But These are our fun questions, Michael. So different ones for you. If you could travel anywhere in the world, apart from Old Trafford, that you haven't been, that you haven't yet been to, where would you go and why? I think... There's quite a few places I'd like to go at the minute, but the one place that was on my list last year, but COVID scuppered it, was um, Singapore. I'm going to see the gardens by the base of the super trees. Um, and from a geography perspective, it, it's something I really want to see. Um, just see the, the architecture and just the, the process behind what they're, what they're trying to do in Singapore through it. So... That, I think that, for me, is one of my key areas that I'd like to visit um, coming up. And then second to that would be to go and see the Terracotta Warriors. So they'd be the, they're two top lists of places that that's on my, um, my to-do. You're more of a, a Michael Palin sort of round-the-world guy or Carl Pilkington? Carl Pilkington, probably. Good choice. Good choice. No disrespect to Michael Palin. He's a legend as well. Michael, when you were a child, who or what did you want to be growing up? Carpenter. I didn't think it was a child, maybe. Yeah. You might have already answered this, really. I think we've delved into the fact that, you you know, you pretty much built your own home. But, you know, what is your favourite hobby? Is it working with wood? Is it the gardening? What, what is your favourite hobby to do? Probably housework, DIY, yeah. I do enjoy it, actually. It's uh, something I definitely enjoy. And you may have already you may have already said it on this podcast, and you claim to have been like a, you know, the number one student in your school. However, what is the worst or most ridiculous lie that you've ever told? I'll tell you one. Uh, this was brilliant, actually. This was brilliant. It wasn't a lie. It was because I don't tend to tell many lies. To be fair, I'm quite good like that. But this is this is an April Fool's joke that that me and my brother played on my dad. It was brilliant. It was the best one. I, I vividly remember it because it was cracking. So 
he had this big stereo like you used to do years ago with all the all the CD decks and everything, all his CDs all underneath. It was his prized possession. So one day we were watching TV and we just thought this would be a funny joke. So we got the stereo controls and uh, I had the stereo control. My brother had the TV control by him, like hidden. We're like, Dad, Dad, come and look at this. Your stereo is working the TV. Can you believe it? And so we were using the stereo and, and my brother was changing it at the same time. He was like, no. I was like, yeah, yeah, look. And then he took him off me to have a go. My brother's still there going. And uh, he, he was hook, line and sinker. He believed it. So in the end, we had to tell him the truth afterwards. Like, I think it was like, it was the day after because he just believed it. He didn't, he didn't want to not believe it. So we just had him. So then we told him the day after. He said, actually, Dad, we, we weren't telling the truth. We were using, we were pretending. But that was when he was trying to do it by himself and it didn't work. So we felt a bit cruel then. We couldn't couldn't let the joke carry on so um yeah that's probably probably one that sticks out that was brilliant that was do you know what i thought you were genuinely going to say because nobody picked you up on it earlier when you were talking about the research you talked about black first of all and then and being a united fan you then went and of course fernandez and ronaldo they talk about and i just thought do you know what you're so well read you could genuinely say Oh, you know, know. Greenwood and Rashford. They, they actually said something. And I did I did for a minute think, is he having a proper wind-up here? Is he just picking out a couple of United players here and palming it off as research he's read? Do you know what? That's why I delayed in it. You notice I delayed because I thought, you know what? They're going to think I'm pulling a fast one here. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to come back and say, I've had you like all podcasts, actually. I said something earlier and I've had you. No, no, no. I did think it, though, to be fair. Michael, hopefully I can transmit without freezing here. But if you could invite anyone to a dinner party, dead or alive, who would it be? And what would you talk to them about? Oh, this is a hard one. Really hard. Those authors, Fernandez and Ronaldo again. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm going to... It's probably... Well... Do you know what? More, more, it's more than a job. The more, the yeah. more than the job, boys, to a dinner party. Yeah. Come on. You know, come on. We've had you on you know, This is a bit sentimental, actually. I'll try not to cry, actually. A bit sentimental. But I'd probably invite my granddad back because um, I'm going to start. I'll start one up here. Because just because, like, it's just I want, I want him to see what I've done, you know, to be proud. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, of course, we ask this of all our guests. And um, we'll ask this of you now. Obviously, we know how well you're doing and we can't wait for research at Warrington. But what's next for you? Well, before this, I met with David Goodwin. We just met on a Zoom um, before we joined here with yourselves. So a little secret project on the go, just cooking up to a little project. Um, and obviously writing the new book on questioning as well. So um, that should be out soon, some point this year. That's... Like I say, well in the process, halfway through that. So, yeah, I mean, long term. Well, say long term, but the next couple of years, hopefully, headship. That's my, that's my, that's my plan. And we'll, we'll come and, and work I, for you if you want us. Well, I might let you. Might let you. <laughs> oh, I didn't freeze on that bit then. <laughs> Towards the end of the podcast, you're back. Yeah. Honestly, I'm fuming. I'm really annoyed. <laughs> I've been silenced tonight. <laughs> That's a first for anything, I tell you. 
What he doesn't know is we 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 phoned his brother early and went, can you just have a mess around with a Wi-Fi, please? Brilliant. Right. The other half, my wife's cooked me dinner actually, so I feel guilty because I haven't cooked the steak. So I've got about four minutes before dinner's yeah, gonna be ready. No, we've done. Oh, I mean, we, we, we've timed it to perfection. Michael Child, it's been a it's been a Zoom uh, in stroke internet connection interrupted uh, podcast tonight. But I think we've managed to get through. I mean, it's all Dan's problem anyway because he's got to try and edit and find a way through all that mess now. But it's, it's been once again absolutely fascinating. We're we're going to pick you up at Research Head Warrington again and, and catch up with you then. Tickets available for Research Head. How do people get them, Mike? Before uh, before we let you go. Some will be coming out probably tomorrow again. Another batch will be released tomorrow and then another big announcement next week. First for Research Ed. So, um, yeah, so keep keep your eyes peeled for that. 23rd of April. Could you give the listeners any, like, cryptic clue as to what the, as to what the, the Research Ed first could be? Um, no. No? Oh, <laughs> maybe that's cryptic in itself. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we really appreciate your time. Go and enjoy your steak that your wife's cooked, and we'll catch up with the research that in, uh, in a couple of months. Michael Childs, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like.